Vipassana Sutta. And I assume that many of you here have minimally tried some form of meditation. Is that fair? Otherwise, unlikely that you attend a talk that says Satipatthana. I mean, really, how boring is that? The Pali word is so longer than usual. How many of you are familiar with Sati meditation? Mindfulness meditation? Okay, you are too modest. How many of you know something about Sati meditation? A bit higher. I, no bionic eyes here. No, the reason why I'm asking is because I want to have a sense of how high or how low I should pack this talk. So if you don't let me know what kind of profile is this audience, I may go so low you will walk out. Or you're too polite, you'll walk out later. You won't come back next week. Um, so how many of you are completely new to this topic? Never heard of it before, so I have to go from basics. Okay, basics then. Then the rest of you who will find this boring, you can ask questions later. Okay? Then I'll address your questions directly. Now, first and foremost, definition of this term. It's a compound of two words. Sati, Patana, two words. And depending on what books you read, you will find that the explanation is a little different. You may notice it, you may not, but actually the definition is a little different. The reason is because it depends on how they compound the words. If they say sati upattana, upattana is establishing. So something that establishes helps you to establish mindfulness. Sati means mindfulness. If they say sati Patana is foundation. So they are foundations of mindfulness. What's the difference? One is a verb, the other is a noun. Meaning to say, do you see this process as trying to establish, teaching the mind how to have mindfulness? It's a process. Or are they, are they things, substance? that the mind can latch on to, to establish mindfulness. There's a slight difference. But the point is, the Buddha had, had introduced some objects to help your mind focus, focus the mind on those objects, to observe these objects, and to grow spiritually from observing these objects. Okay? Now, in the Sutta, in Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha started off saying, why, what is the purpose of this particular meditation, Sati meditation? And the Buddha gave five reasons. One, he said, this is the direct path for Ekayana Magga. One direct path for the following. 
One, purification of beings. Our mind typically is not neat and clean. We have a lot of craving, we have a lot of negative instincts, we react with negativity, usually often to some things we don't like. There are more things we don't like than like. If I were to sit down here and say, can you list five things you like, you will struggle. Can I list, can you list five people you don't like? Well, very fast. <laughs> it's our instinct. It's okay. It doesn't make you bad. It makes you average. So the first thing that this method does is to help you to tame those negative instincts. To reduce, to reduce your negative impulses. And why do you want to do that? If you don't have these impulses, negative impulses reduced, can you really be happy? Can you really progress spiritually? No, it's going to be very difficult. Very, very difficult. So the first thing it helps you do, this method helps you do, is to tame the negative impulses of the mind to help you overcome all those negative instincts. Okay? The second thing it does is to help you overcome sorrow and grief and lamentation. I'm going to take the next two together. So, second, overcoming sorrow, grief, and lamentation. Third, third, disappearance of pain and grief. You may say, uh, what's the difference? There is a difference. One is you are in pain already. You have stress. You have distress. You are disturbed. Hence, you have pain, grief, lamentation. They're very strong words. This method, if you are in grief now, this method will help you overcome the grief. So if you've lost somebody, you've lost something, you have not gotten something you really want, you are in pain now, you use this method, you should be able to walk out of that pain. So that's getting rid of a pain that's with you. The next one says disappearance of pain and grief. This is not necessarily that you are in pain now, but the potential for you to be in pain is always there, right? The potential for you to be in grief is always there, right? Just because you don't lose somebody now doesn't mean you're not going to lose somebody tomorrow, right? Choy, but yeah. Right? So, what this method helps you do is if you become really proficient at it, at some point, because you are very good at this method, at some point, grief will not strike you as hard when it comes. And if you are really, really, really good, you're on the right path and you're doing very well, grief may not arise when the occasion provides for it. That's the difference. So one is grief is there. Your best friend. You wake up, he's there. You go to bed, he's there or she's there. 
And this one will help you get out of that. You'll be able to push him off the bed and move on with your life. The second one is, he's not even there, but he can come and haunt you, or she can come and haunt you, the pain, the grief. And because you're so good at it, you basically put a sanji pie there, or not sanji pie, one of those talisman there, Choi put the wrong thing, and the grief will not come. Okay? So that's three. Fourth, attainment of the true way. Meaning to say, you are on the right track of the Eightfold Path. This is the right track, Buddha is essentially saying. And if you walk this path correctly, properly, you are on a narrow road towards Nibbana. Because the last one says realization of Nibbana. Nibbana is a state of mind. It's not a destination that is physical. It is a state of mind. And if you are on this path and you're doing it right, at the end of this journey, you will realize what is Nibbana. This is the Buddha's promise. The point being, this point, the point here is, he said, this is the one direct path. Everything else, if you don't take this, you do everything else, you can achieve all kinds of things. But you may not, you may not realize Nibbana. You can go all over the place. Very indirectly, you may kind of stray close to Nibbana. But you don't quite hit it. As long as you are unable, unable to do this particular meditation, what essentially it means is it's going to be difficult, if not impossible, to, to realize Nibbana. Okay, now, shall we start? That was just introduction. Buddha went on in the sutta, he went on to explain what are the four foundations of mindfulness or what are the four sets of objects that your mind should look out, should watch out for, should focus on. As it watches, okay? If you look at these four, you stand back and you look at them, essentially they are actually the five aggregates. Because they are your mind and your body, essentially. What he had done is to present you to you, for you to observe, to study to track closely. And the four items, today I will do one, at most two. Next week, this is, this is like a Taiwan cereal. Next week, next week we'll do the other two. The reason why I split it this way, I could have done all four today, but the reason why I'm doing it this way is because each of them, especially the first and the last one, there are many things to say that, that, that we can go into a lot of elaboration and you would want to have those elaboration. The elaboration takes time. So, today we'll just do the first one, which is Rupa, and the second one, if we can, Vedana. I need to give a bit of time for questions answer. Okay? So, let's start with the first. 
first of all, that uh, Rupa, Vedana, Chitta, Dhamma. Rupa essentially is the body. The Buddha presents the body, the physical form, a concrete object you can see and touch, smell, feel, so on. Okay? Present this form for you to study. That's Rupa. The second one, Vedana, feelings. All of us, one time or another, may neglect your physical form, may forget your physical form, right? But it's so much harder to neglect and forget the feelings, right? We kind of get very caught up with feelings. So feelings are a very powerful object to study. Second, chitta refers to the mind. Chitta, states of mind. Right at this point, what's your state of mind? Some will say, uh... Dot, 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 dot. So, okay, didn't study your state of mind very well, hence the dot, dot, dot. After explanation and all, perhaps you can do it better. And the last one, Dhamma. Dhamma, many have explained it to be the mind. It's also another extension of the mind, mental states. I like to look at it, I like to look at it as more the Literally, the concepts, the ideas that the Buddha introduced for us to follow, to track. Because you look at things like for the Four Noble Truths, the Seven Factors of Enlightenment, the Five Nivaranas, and so on and so forth. These are concepts which the Buddha had introduced for us to reflect as we study ourselves. Okay? So that's the last one. So we start off with contemplation of the body. The... Kaya. Now, I could have approached this talk in two ways. One, introduce a whole list of Pali words and lose everybody in the process. And I decided that maybe for this audience I won't do that. I'll go through the sutta, but we will do it in English. There is something beautiful about Pali. I mean, when you introduce it in Pali, you actually try to reach the essence of, of what it said. English, sometimes we lose that, that touch. But it's okay. More important that you get the general idea. Now, in this method, when you study the body, you have to do it in two parts. I'll take you through both parts. Okay? The very first one, the first object he introduced, he used breathing. Mindfulness of the breath. And this is what the Buddha said. And how, monk, does a monk abide contemplating the body as body? Here, a monk, having gone into the forest, or to the root of a tree, or to an empty place, sits down, cross-legged, holding his body erect, having established mindfulness before him. A few things to make, a few points to make here. First, notice that the Buddha spent a little bit of time talking about the suitable place 
suitable place for contemplation. It is important because for many of us starting out, if you are an experienced meditator, it's okay. It's not so bad. But if you are very young, very new to the ground, to the game, you want to find a place where your mind is most is clearest. It's most in tune with Dhamma before you start contemplating about the body. In a place, in some other place, you may get very distracted. Distraction can cause you a lot of frustration. You understand that? I mean, imagine going to Marina Bay Sand and try to be mindful about breathing. So, ting! Distracted already. Pong! Ah, also distracted already. And so on and so forth. So, there are places and there are places. First thing he said, what are these places? He talks about nature. And he talks about quiet. Forest, root of a tree, or an empty place. Quiet place. A quiet place allows you the time to be with yourself. You are not distracted by the world outside. The whole practice is about understanding the world within. It is not about understanding the world without. It's within. The second thing he said, holding the body erect, having established mindfulness before him. This is about mindfulness of breathing, right? Why does he say establish mindfulness before him? Essentially what the Buddha is saying is, you sit in a quiet place, then you focus your attention here at the tip of your nose or in front of you because what you want is a focus I know this is sati meditation but if you believe that sati meditation is completely completely divorced from samadhi meditation yes but also not quite. At the start point, at the start point, they are similar. At the very start point, you sit and you focus. It's similar. It's only after that that it's different. Okay? So you focus. Where is it different? Here. He said, mindfully he breathes in, mindfully he breathes out. Breathing in a long breath, he knows that he breathes in a long breath. Breathing out a long breath, he knows that he breathes out a long breath. <coughs> he trains himself thinking. I will breathe in conscious of the whole body. Okay, this is the next part. Let's talk about the breath first. He said, mindfully he breathes in, Mindfully, he breathes out. Meaning to say, this is where it's different. In samadhi meditation, you focus on one spot, you don't track anything. You don't move around track spots. In sati meditation, you watch, literally watch, observe, focus, track the breath going in 
and the breath going out, that's one. The second thing you track is the the actual experience of breathing. That's why he says, when you breathe in a long breath, you know. When you breathe out a long breath, you know. You know that it's a long breath. What is interesting here is he is observing factually. Please note this. Observing factually. The adjective is factual. Long, short, very factual. Observing factually the characteristic of a breath. The Buddha is giving an example what you are supposed to look out for. This is not the end all and be all. He's giving an example of what you should be looking out for when you are doing sati meditation. In sati meditation, you need to be very observant. You need to look at things factually. You need to establish a certain distance so there is objectivity. How do we know that he wants you to establish a distance? He said, he trains himself thinking, I will breathe out conscious of the whole body. I will breathe in coming the whole bodily process. I will breathe out coming the whole bodily process. The whole thing when you put together, first part and the second part, the first part where you describe and the second part where you observe in a slight distance the body of breath. Can you see that? How many people have I lost? (laughs) Let me just explain again. When you... Okay, my favorite example, for those of you who have heard of this before, bear with me. I'm not very creative. Can you think of a couple of examples? You watch television, right? You watch movies, right? Sometimes when you watch movies or television, you get very caught up in the show, right? You are the lead actor. His beloved is dying and so are you. So his, his girlfriend dies and you cry. Why? Your girlfriend died. No one. His girlfriend died, right? But you were all caught up, you see. You're all meshed with him. So he suffers, you suffer. He laughs, you laugh, right? Sometimes when you watch, you find yourself a little distance from the character. Either the show is really bad or you're very mindful that day, so you're a bit distant. So his girlfriend die or his her boyfriend die and you are okay. Then you look around you, oh everybody crying. So sad you never mind, don't cry, don't cry, huh? So you're feeling very compassionate towards the world. A very distant, right? Can you see the two? If you are not observing in the distance, if you haven't put a distance between yourself and the breath, you're meshed in it. You can't see the breath. If there is a distance between you and your breath, you can, you can observe the breath objectively as a body of breath. Objectively. 
Can you see that? The distance. So what he wants you to do in this method is you have to be very observant. Why do you have to be observant? Because the more observant you are, the sharper is your mindfulness. Okay? It is to tell the teacher and yourself how sharp your mindfulness is. And, and, why do you want to keep it factual? Because you're generating within you the skill of objectivity. Let me give you an example. What is this? Not a trick question. What is this? Who say don't know? For those of you who say bottle of water, you're right. One point. Okay? Now describe it. What would you say? It's a bottle of water. What's that to describe? Wrong. If you are mindful, and this is the method, you will say plastic, looks plastic, transparent. You start with saying transparent or translucent like bottle, right? Wrapped about halfway, a piece of blue paper with words on it and colouring of orange, right? This is describing factually, using all the adjectives that you can think of, factual description of this bottle. White cap. How many of you observe the white cap? What else can you observe? That it is not empty. It's filled to the brim. These are factual descriptions that you go, my two-year-old kid can do that. Yes, he can, but you can't. Because he will tell me all these things, whereas you have Mary go, bottle of water, full stop. You see that we have lost certain skills along the way. We are now regaining those skills. Why do you want to regain those skills? Because regaining these skills will do a few things to you. First, it causes you to literally establish a distance between yourself and the physical activity in the body. If you can see long breath, short breath, thin breath, subtle breath, when you keep doing that, you're establishing an objective a distance and objectivity towards the breath. And the more you can say about that wonderful breath, the more you're sharpening your observation mind, your objective observation mind. Why do you want to do this? I'll tell you later. Okay? But that's the whole intent. The whole intent, he provided you with just that breath to do that. Isn't that lovely? And then he said, So he abides contemplating body as body internally, contemplating body as body externally, contemplating body as body both internally and externally. He abides contemplating arising phenomenal, in the body, 
he abides contemplating vanishing phenomenon in the body, he abides contemplating both vanishing, arising and vanishing phenomenon in the body. So, the first part of the meditation requires you to establish distance, achieve objectivity in observing this body, right? That's only part one. The part two, the part two is critical. What it requires you to do is if when you are so sharp with your observation, you will be able to see a rising and falling away of the breath. And any phenomenon. Why do you want to see the arising and falling away? Because if you don't see arising and falling away, the whole idea of impermanence doesn't hit you between the eyes. How do you realize impermanence? Realize, eh? not understand. I'm sure you understand what's impermanent. All of you here will say, I know impermanent. That's an easy one. The other two are a bit more chima, but this one I know. But you have you realized it? Have you actually seen it? Oh yeah, yeah, my table brought away. Ma. It's wrong. It's not about the table. It's about you. It's about every single experience in your body. Every single experience in your body is impermanent including, in particular, the breath. The breath is so impermanent, split second is different. So as you watch the breath come in, and as you watch the breath goes out, you literally see rising and falling. And that's just the breath. Then the Buddha went on to say, Now, there arises in him the mindfulness. There is a body to the extent necessary for the growth of wisdom, for the growth of mindfulness. Independent he leaves, clinging to nothing in this world. This is a form of realization. You must remember when the Buddha taught this, Mahasatipatthana Sutta was taught to a group of meditators monks. So they would have been practicing already. And when he say these parts, first part, second part, third part, to them is something they can identify with. Today in this audience is a, a mix of people, some with a lot of experience in meditation, some a little new to the game. So for those of you who understand well and good, for those of you who don't understand, don't worry. Over time, if you meditate, you will begin to see the picture also. Okay? So the first part talks about established objectivity. How do you do it? You, by being very meticulous, by being very systematic, by observing factually. You establish a distance between you and the process, objectivity, and then you sharpen the mindfulness. As you sharpen the mindfulness, you should be able to describe more things factually. That's the first part. The second part because your mindfulness has been sharpened and sharpened very well, at some point you will be able to see the arising of the phenomenal, 
breath, the arising of the breath, the falling away of the breath, the rising of the breath, falling of the breath. You will see as it comes out, you see as it fades away. That's the second one. Now comes the third, the third insight. The third insight here talks about anatta. This is the this particular stanza here is an explanation of what's anatta. Anatta has been translated as soullessness, substancelessness. Can you understand that? Soullessness, substancelessness. Okay. It's a long story for another day. But what, what I want to say here is, arises in him the mindfulness. The phrase, now there arises in him the mindfulness. Meaning to say, this meditator is so sharp with his mindfulness, it dawns on him, it dawns on him, this thought, and he is aware of that thought. And the thought is, there is a body. There is a body. Look at the objectivity. The words are chosen very carefully. Eh? He didn't say here, this is my body. He says here, there is a body. So he's so objective, he's calling this body, there is this body. To the extent necessary for the growth of wisdom, for the growth of mindfulness. Meaning to say, there is this body that you can use, that he is using, to grow spiritually, to understand the Dhamma. For the arising necessary for the arise, for the growth of wisdom, to understand the Dhamma, and he's using the body to understand how that mind works, and for the growth of mindfulness, he's using the body to sharpen his mindfulness. When he gets to that stage, he's really calling the body that body, right? When he gets to the stage, he is no longer clinging. And when you don't cling, what happens? You see, you're, you're developing a certain objectivity, a certain distance to your body. If you reach the point of achieving that distance to the body, you're going to cling to the body? You will see a distance. You may still, when you get out of meditation, but in the meditation, you will see it as that body. Is a distance. We see as that body, there is no I, my, me identified with this body. In that sense, it's anatta. You see it as it is. As it, as it breathes, as it throbs, as it grows, as it dies. As it is. The body has its own needs, has its own requirements, has its own conditions to live and to die. And you see it as it is. You don't get attached to that. So clinging on to nothing. Okay? You understand this part? And that's just the breath. 
we move on to other things. So, when you are looking at the physical form, the Rupa, the Buddha taught his disciple that these are the following types of activities associated with the body that your mind can track mindfully. One is the breath. Two is posture. Standing, sitting, lying down, and then the last, walking. Posture. Traditionally, you have four. If you can think of more, by all means. Four, you cannot cope. Think of more a bit harder. Now, how does this work? In the same way. In the same way that you are tracking your breath. You track the body. When you stand, when you sit, let's, let's do sit since all of you are seated, right? Let's do sit. And I want, to, I want you to draw your, your, your mind. Take your mind to yourself right now. Look at your own posture. Can you come out with adjectives describing your posture? No need to shout out answer. No need, no need. Shout quietly to yourself. If you can say, I sit upright, full stop. Not so good lah. Try harder. It means your mind, your, your ability to observe objectively that posture is a little limited. Your vocabulary very small. Because you're not used, it's, it's just you're not used to try and observe things objectively. If you're very used to it, if you have been practicing mindfulness correctly, you should be very good at going, describing the contact point. Which part of your body touches a surface so that you can be upright? Which part of the body specifically is experiencing some ache? Which part of the body has sensations and the others are numb? And you can describe it, muscle by muscle. You, the, the objective is not for you to go and get obsessed about the pain. The objective is for you to practice observation skill, objectivity, clarity of mind, meticulousness of the mind. This is all method. Okay? So just on sitting alone... You can make much observations. When you go to retreat and the, and the teacher tells you to, oh, now do sitting meditation and now do walking meditation. Usually they don't say sleeping meditation, but you do too. And then when you go for your, your session with the teacher and you, and you are not answering the correct, you're not observing. You're, when you are to tell him what you observe, it, so that he can gauge how sharp your mindfulness is. So the more objective you can come up, so more adjectives that you can come up with to describe a state, it is a sign of your clarity and the sharpness. But instead, instead I've heard, uh, I've heard people going, I can feel air when I sit. That's going into the realm of fantasy. Not, they say, but I can feel it. 
You've gone into the air of, I mean, the, the realm of fantasy. You don't have to get into air. You just have to look at muscles. Good enough, okay? So, posture is the next lot. Look at what the Buddha say, okay? And, sorry, uh, when you look at posture, so one is objectivity, observation, clarity, right? That's the first one. And the second one, the third one is the same. You still will establish that distance so you don't cling on to this body and you will still look at it and see processes without clinging on to the process. Okay? I'm going to read to you what he said. A monk, when walking, knows when, that he's walking. When standing, knows that he's standing. When sitting, knows that he's sitting. When lying down, knows that he's lying down. In whatever way the body is disposed, he knows that that is how it is. Describe as it is. Not describe as you think. Can you hear and see the difference? Describing something as it is, it's factual. Back to my beloved bottle. Factual. Describing as you think it should be, or as you think, is it's a bottle of water. How you know this is not cyanide? It's a bottle of liquid. When you say it's a bottle of water, there is a concept. You have already Work through, da, 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 computed, and your computer has computed water. Whereas, for all you know, this, this could be, I don't know what this, what, what liquid is invisible? It's like transparent. Turpentine. It could be turpentine for all I know. Get it? So here it is that he knows that that is how it is, as it is, okay? So he abides contemplating body as body internally, externally, da 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 move on, on, move on, move on. We go into clear awareness, okay? A monk, when going forward or backward, is clearly aware of what he is doing. In looking forward or back, is clearly aware of what he is doing, in bending and stretching, he's clearly aware of what he's doing. In carrying his inner and outer rope and his bowl, he's clearly aware of what he's doing. In eating, drinking, chewing, savoring, clearly aware of what you're doing. And so on and so forth. What the Buddha had described, what the Buddha had described is activities. So in every activity that you are doing, you are clearly aware, as in you are observing, that those activities, observing those activities. Look at that. Chewing, savoring, is clearly aware of what he's doing. In passing excretion or urine, he is clearly aware of what he's doing. In walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up. How many of us are mindful when we wake up? We wake up law, hop out of bed, ayo, late, and so on and so forth. But this is waking up and he's mindful of waking up. That, 
That is a measure of how sharp the mindfulness is. Okay? Moving on. <clears throat> the next lot. So you have breathing, posture, daily activities. Next lot. Reflecting on the repulsiveness of the body. Parts of the body. Okay? This very body from the sole of the feet upwards and from the scalp downwards, enclosed by skin and full of manifold impurities. There are body hairs, head hairs, body hairs, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, Plural, spleen, lungs, etc., 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 etc. So, I don't want to go into too much detail. Essentially, this is the part where the Buddha goes into individual parts. You don't have to, please, no need to go home and memorize what the Buddha say. They spend the rest of the day trying to track these things in your body. Visual audio. And then after that, go try to memorize these parts. And then you sit down before you, when you sit down to meditate, you're going to memorize these parts. Don't have to do that. The Buddha was just citing an example. An example of what is in your body. If you want to contemplate on the repulsiveness of the body, all you need to do is to basically just remember what you can remember. Reflect on what you can remember. And avoid the parts that you particularly like. Because you're supposed to think about the bad ones, right? The ones you don't like. The ones where you're uncomfortable with. So what the Buddha had done essentially is to open up the body. Why does he do this? Establishing objectivity. It's hard to be attached to the spinal cord. How to be attached to a spinal cord? It's easy to be attached to that lovely nose of yours. Those beautiful eyes you have. But a lot harder to be attached to the spinal cord. Right? Or my feeble bone. How to attach to my cervical cord. Bit difficult. So the idea here is to open up the body and to look at the parts And as you go through the parts, it should, it should, unless you are utterly attached to yourself, it should dawn on you that those are your mechanical parts. Those are the parts of a car. You, the car. Volvo notwithstanding, you are still a car. And how those parts come together to make you work and how they can fall apart. So hard to be attached to little parts. Okay? The next lot deals with what we call the nine carnal ground contemplation. Different stages of decomposition. Look, there is absolutely no need for you to go through all of them. Meaning to say, in order to realize the Buddha say, I must see all these things, right? So I must see them all including the nine carnal ground contemplation. In Singapore, a bit difficult. Every dead body goes into either the... What's that thing called? 
the oven. You know what I mean, that, that thing that burns the body. I forgot what it means. You go into that, or it goes into the ground. You don't see a rotting body. We don't usually see a rotting body, right? Usually, if you smell a rotting body, you're going to call 911. Right? Okay. Next time when you smell a rotting body, go and check it out. Lah. See which stage of, contempla- of, of, of decomposition. So at least you've got one tick here. In the Buddha's time, they basically just dump these bodies somewhere. Common, it's a communal burial ground if you're very poor. If you're extremely poor, they take these bodies, they dump it into a common burial ground. And if there are not enough vacancies, I mean, if there are still vacancies, they don't bury it. They wait for the rest to come in, then bury. You understand? So to be cremated is a good thing. To be buried, maybe it means you're poor. So you go into a communal burial ground. That's why these monks can go into the cemetery, sit there and observe bodies rotting. Okay? So that's about the rotting body. And I need, the reason why I'm hurrying through is because I need to read this part to you. So he abides, contemplating body as body, internally. Contemplating body as body, externally. Contemplating Body as body, both internally and externally. He abides contemplating a rising phenomenon in the body, contemplating vanishing phenomenon in the body, contemplating both arising and vanishing phenomenon in the body. The mindfulness that there is a body is present in him just to the extent necessary for knowledge and awareness. And he abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. Notice that this particular stanza is tagged onto each and every experience. Meaning to say, when you are practicing on your own, when you are practicing on your own, there are two things you should be doing. Separate things. One, teach yourself to study the phenomenal objectively And in precise terms, accurately, objectively, in precise terms, when you are doing that, what you are doing also at the same time is to shut down the conceptualizing instinct of the mind. Okay, part one, observing objectively, Describing in precise terms, describing in precise terms, when you are doing that, your mind capacity to conceptualize, you are trying to shut it down. Why are you shutting that down? Because when you are trying to understand the Buddha's Dhamma, the conceptualizing mind, the talkative one, the one that makes judgment, the ones that makes assumptions, the one that gives labor to everything, that part of the mind can't see the Dhamma. That part of the mind experiences an experience that should have yielded his wisdom, that Dhamma, that part of the mind will look at it, corrupt it. You get vague, you get blurred, you can't see it. 
this part of the process, the part where you're objective, you are accurate, you're describing accurately, sharp, accurate description, this is the part that you're trying to tease out, you're trying to train. This is the part that can see the Dhamma. Okay? Can you understand this thing? This is very important. In the practice, if you cannot shut down the part of the mind that makes judgments, that makes assumptions, that conceptualizes the world, gives labor to everything, you cannot shut that one down, you're going to have a problem trying to see the Dhamma. Because when you see impermanence, you will then give a nice story. Once upon a time, and they live happily ever after. About impermanence. Too much words. You don't see it as it is. You have given it labor based on label, based on what you know about life. But because you've never seen Nibbana, you've never understood Nibbana, how do you give your label will not be correct, right? Never seen it, never touch it. That part. Any question up to here? Okay. So, part one, objective, precision, and so on and so forth, shuts down the talkative, laboring, presum- the, the, the part that makes assumptions, shut that down. The second part is when you are observing phenomenal, always bear in mind the Buddha's emphasis here. See it objectively. When you're seeing it objectively, mindful of the fact this is just a body. When you start off, you will keep repeating the mantra. This is just a body. To the extent that I need this body for the practice, for the developing of the mindfulness, for the realization of the Dhamma, the realization of Nibbana. When you start off, it's just a mantra. You're reminding yourself. But at some point, it's no longer a mantra. At some point, it's a realization. When it becomes a realization, you, you have then experienced anatta. Okay? When you start off, it's just a word that you kept saying to remind yourself this is the practice. The practice, observing something objectively, this is a body, this is how it works, this is what it is. This is the rising of phenomena, this is the passing away of phenomena, this is the rising and passing away of phenomena. It's just words. But as you keep seeing and observing and you sharpen that, that clarity, you sharpen the, 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 the capacity to describe objectively, and you're able to shut down the talkative part. When you can do that, a day will come when you actually experience your mantra. It is not a word. It is an experience. When you experience it, when you experience the arising of phenomena and the passing of the phenomena, and you experience you experience it as this is really just a body and it is a body that has its own function, that has its own activities. There are molecules, atoms doing its own merry thing within you. It's got nothing to do with your mind. You can't control that. It is just a process. The point when you realize that the whole universe of the I, actually not I, what's your name? Ratna. The whole universe of Ratna. 
the whole universe is a cluster, a cluster of galaxies of activities that Ratna, the goddess, cannot control. Doesn't control. How much more of anatta you want to experience when you see within yourself you're just collection of activities and goes by itself without permission from you. You think each cell inside there you can control. How many of you want to? I want cancer tomorrow. Most of you will say, I don't want cancer. But if you can control the body, you can tell, hey, you don't be naughty with me. I smack you. Uh. I say no cancer. But it doesn't work like that, right? It does its own merry thing, right? So from the body itself, the Buddha wants you to see for yourself anicca dukkha anatta from that body. I think today we cannot do feelings. We'll leave feelings for next week. Because I need to give time for questions. So this is the body talk. And feel free to ask any question that you have. Anyone want to ask any questions? <laughs>